Let's pray. Dear Lord God Almighty, thank you for the opportunity that we all have to be here today. You give strength for each day, each new day, and your mercies are new every day. So Lord, we come to you as needy people. Father, we need your sustaining grace. We need the strength spiritually and physically, emotionally, that you give. And Lord, I pray that in our weakness, we will find you completely sufficient. Pray for those who are weak and sick and cannot be here today, that you would nourish them up, both body and soul. Pray, God, for the word of God as it goes forth this day and every day that, Lord, the Spirit of God would convict hearts, especially those who know not Christ, that they might bow their knee to him while there is yet time. And also, Lord, for Christians, that we too would be sensitive to the work of the Spirit of God whom you have given to each believer. So bless now, Father, I pray in a special way this time to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. I devoted the first message on the kings of Israel to the first king, Saul. We've been looking at Israel and the plan of God. You look at the life of Saul, you know that he committed some really serious sins. But two of them early in his reign as king had a high price tag. The first was a sin of commission, what he did. He crossed the boundary that God had drawn for him. And as a result, we learn in 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 and 14, that he would have no dynasty. And the situation was such that the Israelites were facing a, a battle with the Philistines, their mortal enemy. And rather, rather than waiting for Samuel to come, he was told to wait till Samuel got there. He waited seven days because Samuel was the only one who can offer sacrifice to the Lord for his blessing as they would go to this battle. And what Saul did was take matters into his own hands. He grew impatient in waiting upon Samuel, and he offered a sacrifice. It says in 1 Samuel 13, 13, you can turn there. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. He would have no lasting dynasty. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord had commanded him to be the commander of his people. When you think about this, he waited like we all do. We grow, imp we, we grow impatient. Saul grew impatient. He thought he was doing a good thing. And this seems like such a harsh thing, right? When, when Uzzah touched the ark of God to steady it, that's all he did. And he died. And we look at those things and we go, Whoa, that's really harsh. 
I like what Matthew Poole, the Puritan commentator, wrote. He said, men are very incompetent judges of God's judgments because they see but very little, either of the majesty of the offended God or the heinous nature and aggravations of the offense. Men see nothing but Saul's outward act, which seems small. But God saw how wicked a mind and heart he had in doing this. God saw with what rebellion against the light of his own conscience he did it. With what gross distrust of God's providence. With what contempt of God's authority and justice. And many other wicked principles and motions of the heart unknown to men, God saw in Saul. And really, when you think about it, Saul had no reverence for God, and he had no true understanding of the holiness of God. The second sin he committed, which was very costly, was a sin of omission. He not only failed, he not only did what God told him not to do, he failed to do what God commanded, falling short of what he commanded. And for this, he would be rejected as king. He would lose his throne. We read in 1 Samuel 15 now, verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. So here's the command now. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have with an emphasis on all. And do not spare them. Both Kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So pretty stern command here. Very thorough, very clear. But look in verse 8, what Saul did. He took Agog, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep the oxens, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and note these words, and were unwilling to destroy them. God gave a clear command and he disobeyed it. And he offered an excuse for, for his sin, like we all do, right? In verse 21, it sounds very pious. He says, I spared the best of the animals to sacrifice to you. And again, we would look at that and we would say, well, that seems like a good motive, right? When, of course, that wasn't really truly what was in his heart. He offered excuses. But listen, dear friends, God is not interested in our excuses. Not at all. He's not interested in our excuses when we sin. He wants true repentance. And he never found that in Saul, like David. 
So in verse 22, Samuel rebukes him with the scripture that we are pretty much familiar with. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than what? Sacrifice. Then you go down a little bit further into verse 25. It says, Now therefore, please pardon my sins, Samuel says, and return with me that I, that I may worship the Lord. Now he's, now he's expressing some type of remorse. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Listen, Saul's rejection was final, but not immediate. Not immediate. It took 25 years before he was replaced by David. You probably heard the, the, the saying, justice delayed is not justice denied. God is very patient in executing his judgment sometimes. Sometimes they're, they're immediate. Saul's successor, we know, was David. It says in 1 Samuel 15, verse 34, Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul and Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about the three anointings of David. This is not three strikes and you are out. This is three anointings and you're in. So the first was by divine decree in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1 and 13. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. And then it says in verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. I want to draw your attention to the words in, in the, verse, the earlier verse that I read, verse 1. I have provided myself a king among his sons. Those words, I have provided myself a king, are in stark contrast to the people who provided themselves a king. And they got the king they wanted. They got Saul. And Alan Redpath said, God's choice is contrary to all human reason. And it's based upon the response of a man's heart to God's love and God's grace. And what is unknown to man is the true state of a person's heart. That's why we read God looks not on the outward appearance, but he looks upon the heart. And he knew what he had in David. And it says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. I can find no references to the Spirit of the Lord coming upon David again. 
Matter of fact, in Psalm 51 and 11, after his great sin with Bathsheba, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He seems to have enjoyed a sustained empowerment by the Holy Spirit. The second anointing was by the elders of Judah in Hebron, right after the death of King Saul. 2 Samuel 2.4, The men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah, and he would rule for Judah for seven and a half years. Now you need to understand that the, the tribes of the north, there's two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the tribes of the north did not accept David as king during those seven years. They crowned Ishbosheth, who was Saul's only surviving son. But he died a violent death, and that opened the way for David to become king of, of all Israel. So the third anointing was by the whole nation of Israel, both Judah and Israel together in 2 Samuel 5, verse 3. All the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old. That's young. When he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. So the subtitle of my message is David, a man after God's own heart. In the Hebrew, the name David means beloved or beloved. So the first question that, that I want to, to pose here, is King David that we read about in Scripture fact or fiction? Is it true? Because Bible critics long denied the existence of David, King David. You've heard of the city of Dan? That's not in Pine Valley. It's in Israel. Dan was a city in northern Israel near the border of modern Lebanon and Syria. And at that location in 1993, archaeologists found a slab of basalt stone, which was really a monument, a portion of a monument which mentions a number of kings from the Bible, interesting, including kings from both the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel in the north. And it's called the Tel Dan, Tel is a mound, Tel Dan location, steel. And the inscription is in Aramaic, and it commemorates the victory of a certain Syrian king that was no doubt Hazael. And the inscription boasts of defeating and killing both Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel. And then it says, I killed Ahazihu, the son of Jehoram, king of the house of David. So we have a picture here. This is Tel Dan. This is the Canaanite gate at Tel Dan. Over 18 centuries constructed over 18 cent in 18th century BC. It's a, it's a really, uh, well, it's part of the Tel Dan Nature Reserve in Israel, and it is absolutely beautiful. You could find a deep forest with canopy trees, the only place in Israel where you will find like that. You'll find gushing sources. Uh, Dan, the, the, the river Dan is the, the greatest source of the, the water that goes in and empties into the Jordan River. 
but it's a very interesting place as well. In the second picture that I have up here, this is the Tel Dan Steel. This is part of that basalt monument that they found there. And right over here, right over here, that little line says the house of David. Yes, David really lived, just as the Bible says, and established a dynasty. David, you know, when you think about him, I was thinking about what word could I describe? What, what, what one word, now don't shout out loud, but what one word would you dis use to describe King David? And I thought about it for a minute, and then the thought came into my mind, complex. Complex. And by the way, some other commentators used the same thing. I don't know where they listened to me talking about that before, but. But F.B. Meyer points this out. He says, from whatever site we view the life of David, it is remarkable. It may be that Abraham excelled him in faith and Moses in the power of concentrated fellowship with God. Elijah in the fiery force of his enthusiasm. But none of these were so many sided as the richly gifted son of Jesse. He was complex. One Old Testament professor wrote, First, David is complex because he is not a one-dimensional man. Instead, he has many different aspects to his character. He is a soldier who kills bears, lions, and ten thousands of enemies, and even a giant. He is also a mu musician and poet, right? With a tender heart, we know. And the second reason he says David is complex is because he is not whitewashed by the text but instead is presented as being thoroughly human, including having doubts and making mistakes. His humanness is what makes him, his description as a man after God's own heart, so compelling because it urges us to understand that our own imperfections and limitations do not disqualify us from also being people after the heart of God. Good news. Our past sins do not have to define us for the rest of our lives. You got that? Our past sins do not have to define us for the rest of our lives. You know, there's a great deal that can be more said about this man, David. He was distinguished in the arts of peace as those in war. He was skilled in music and poetry and equally skilled with the sword. He was a man of war who could write about still waters and green pastures. He had great moments of exhilaration and terrible times of depression, from the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat. Sometimes David was very merciful to people, and at other times he showed no mercy. He had the courage to face Goliath, but he ran from Saul. At times he was single-mindedly devoted to God, yet at other times he fell into deep sin. David was a man who put God's will ahead of his own selfish desires, but then put his selfish desire above God's will and sin with Bathsheba. And it's true, the Bible does not whitewash David. 
He was a great king who subdued nations, but he was also a man with feet of clay, with thoughts, passions, emotions, like we all have. And he struggled like we all struggle. And he failed like we all fail. But praise God, he found his forgiveness with the Lord. And he found his comfort and his strength and his peace with the Lord. Times he was had the utmost confidence in the goodness of God. And at other times he felt completely abandoned by God. Been there? Done that? David's faith was weak at times, no doubt. But I'll say this. His ultimate security was in God. And that's why he wrote in Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. If you want to know more about this man, well, read his life story and read the Psalms because he wrote 73 of them. And he pours out his heart in those Psalms, and you'll feel and see the whole range of human emotion in what David has left us in the Psalms. 1 Samuel 6, 17. So Saul said to his servants, provide me now with a man who can play well and bring him to me. He played the lyre, right? The harp, we call it. Then one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. How many accolades are described in that one verse there? I think six, if I count right. He is complex. Different times, David was poor and rich. Been there? Maybe not the rich part, right? Hated and loved, honored and despised, obscure and prominent, a lowly sinner and a prostate worshiper. David's life was a life of striving for obedience to do the will of God. And when he failed, he turned in repentance and threw himself on God's mercy. And for that reason, David was a man after God's own heart. You know, he's the only person spoken of that way in the Bible. The only one who is described as a man after God's own heart. In Acts 13, verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, 
he raised up for them David a king, to whom also he gave testimony and said what we read earlier in the book of Samuel, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And you know, that is what David wanted to do. He wanted nothing more than to do the will of God, even though he failed many times doing that. But I said he had a repentant heart. Seems in Scripture that he repented very quickly, except with the sin of Bathsheba, which we'll get to next week. And, and Nathan had the prophet had to come into him and say, you're the man. And the result was Psalm 51. But in Psalm 139, 23, he says, Search me, and search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, which really means disquieting thoughts. Whoa. Ever been bombarded with anxieties? Disquieting thoughts? Racing thoughts? And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. He didn't trust his own heart. He knew that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God can know it. So he says, God used the Spirit of God to search my heart and to try me and to test me and see if there's any wicked way in me and, and lead me in the, the way everlasting the way of righteousness. David set the standard for the kings of, of Judah to come. We'll read that in 1 Kings 14. There was a man, a prophet named Ahijah, and he is speaking to the wife of Jeroboam I. Jeroboam I was the king of northern, in northern Israel who led a revolt against Solomon because Solomon taxed the people heavily and then his son Rehoboam taxed them even greater than Solomon did. And Jeroboam revolted and, 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 and 10 of the tribes followed him and they set up a, a, a capital there in Samaria. And by the way, Jeroboam set up an altar. He held two places of worship. One was at Dan and one was at Bethel because he didn't want the people to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship and offer sacrifices. So there in the Tel Dan Nature Reserve in Israel, you have Jeroboam's altar that he built there, the site on earth. It's really pretty remarkable. But in 1 Kings 14, 7, Go tell Jeroboam, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David. There's the standard. He set the bar for the kings of Judah, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. And that seems, seems, uh, in first hearing, well, how could that be? I mean, he committed more than one sin. Well, we'll talk about that as we go on with David. But know this, that more pages are given to David in the Bible than, than anyone else except Jesus. 
That's how prominent he was. And that makes his life worth studying. That fact alone is going to make you want to go home to today and start reading about the life of David and start reading the 73 Psalms that he wrote because it's worth learning from. Edwin Young, commentator, points out, more is known about David than perhaps any other biblical personality. There are 14 chapters in the scripture given to Abraham. The Chronicles of Joseph are described in 14 chapters. Jacob's story, 11 chapters. Elijah's, 9 chapters. But 66 chapters. And, 39, and, and 59 references in the New Testament are given to David for our instruction. So I, I'll say this as we close here. The Christian must strive to be like David in doing good, pursuing the things that would touch the heart of God and avoid the costly mistakes that he made. And one, one other thing we can learn from him is to make quick confession of sin. When he sinned, he repented, and he confessed it rather quickly for the most part, as I said. And that's why in 1 Kings 15, 4, it says, For David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was the husband of Bathsheba, who David had killed to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. I'm going to close with a thought that John Oxenham wrote. He said, to every man there opens a way, and ways, and a way. And the high soul climbs the highway, and the low soul gropes the low. And in between, on the misty flats, the rest drift to and fro. But to every man there openeth a highway and a low, and every man decides which way his soul should go. Those are, those are rather compelling words. Every man decides which way his soul meaning his life, should go. No one else can decide it for you. You have to make that decision. Young people, you have a long life ahead of you. Which way is it going now? Which way do you want it to go? If it's not going in the right way, what will you do about it? Not tomorrow, not next week. What will you do about it today? Starting right now. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Will you serve Jesus with your life? You know, there was another complex man that I read about. He was the medical missionary who opened up Africa to the gospel. His name was David Livingston. 
He was a complex character. He had his sins. Probably the chief was the neglect of his own family. The last man that David Livingston ever saw was Henry Stanley. You need to understand that David Livingston was an explorer as well. He crossed the continent of Africa on foot and boat, 29,000 miles. He found rivers that nobody knew ever existed. He found treatments for malaria and suspected that the cause of malaria was mosquitoes. He said this when he was a young boy. Young people, here's a motto for you. A motto, not a model, a motto. A creed, a statement to live by. He said this, I place no value on anything that I have or may possess except as it relates to the kingdom of God. I place no value on anything that I have or may possess except as it relates to the kingdom of God. After Henry Stanley found Livingston with the famous words, Dr. Livingston, I presume. He died shortly after that. He so loved Africa and the people there. He was an abolitionist who fought against the slave trade and what it had done to people. He was a medical missionary, as I said, an explorer, a man who shared the gospel. He was so dedicated to the work there that the natives cut his heart out of his body and buried it in Africa because that's where his heart was. And then they traveled 900 miles carrying the coffin containing the body of David Livingston, and he came and was buried, and he, his body is entombed in Westminster Abbey. So, complex character. Wasn't perfect. But after Livingston had met Stanley, David Livingston wrote in his journal, God, send me anywhere. Only go with me. That's great, isn't it? Lay any burden on me, except only sustain me. Sever any tie in my heart, except the tie that binds my heart to yours. Sobering, right? What are we doing with our lives? What do we want to do with our lives? Where is your heart this morning? How much of it are you holding on to, your, to it for yourself? And, and how much of it are you surrendering to God?
Lord, send me anywhere, only go with me, lay any burden on me, only sustain me, and sever any tie in my heart except the tie that binds my heart to yours. Father, thank you for this message this morning. God, as we think about the life of David and David Livingston, Lord, help us to realize that that our lives are short. And only what's done for you will last. So God, I do pray that you sever the ties that are keeping us from surrendering our heart and lives completely to you. And Lord, may we, like David, or David Livingston say, I place no value on anything that I have or may possess, except as it relates to the kingdom of God. May we seek to please you, Lord. And when we fail, may we repent quickly and return back to that place of fellowship with you so that we can know the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, I do pray. Amen.